If you're going to try to buy someone's vote, it's helpful to make them feel good about it. The idea is that political parties will use these middlemen who are people from the village who have grown up there and know the, vi you know, the village members quite well. They'll use them to facilitate this vote buying. Um, and so typically they'll provide the middlemen with the goods who will then distribute them to the various households. Welcome to The Pie. I'm your host, Tess Viglund. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day seen through the lens of economics. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. And in this episode, we're looking at political corruption and the role of reciprocity in vote buying. It's not something we're too familiar with here in the States, at least not outright vote buying. But it does happen in other countries. Cash for your selection on a ballot. And we're talking today with Federico Finan about how that happens and possible ways to dissuade people from agreeing to it. He's a professor of economics at UC Berkeley and the T.C. Liu Distinguished Visitor at the Becker Friedman Institute. Federico Finan, welcome to The Pie. Oh, thank you for having me. We'll get to your studies in a moment, but I'm very curious to hear from you kind of how you got started in all this research that you've done on political corruption. Uh, why, why has that been an interest for you? Well, I think it all started when I started to do some field work when I was in graduate school. And so the summer of my second year, I went to Brazil to evaluate what they call a conditional cash transfer program, which is these types of programs that give aid to poor families, but they make it conditional on some type of behavior, whether it be like, you know, sending your kid to school or uh, regular health checks and those type of things. At the time, I was participating in one of the surveys that they were doing to, to collect data on these programs, and I very quickly noticed that there were a lot of politics involved, particularly in the way that local politicians were using the program for their own electoral benefits. So, for instance, they would often tell these households that they were the ones that were responsible for providing these programs, even though this was a federally funded program and so forth. And so I quickly sort of came to realize that, that politics was a, an important element in how public goods and services were being delivered uh, to these families. Given that, I then had returned back to Berkeley, and I had the very good fortune of taking a development course with James Robinson, who's actually on the faculty here at uh, University of Chicago. And his course was really about politics. And it just sort of, and everything that I saw in the field just really came to life. And so this was really sort of an eye-opening event. And it quickly sort of solidified this interest that I had in, you know, understanding the behavior of politicians and thus, you know, how political corruption comes about and how detrimental it can be to the lives of, of poor people. And I assume the economics connection here is right, the money, right? The money that is put on the table, that is the carrot, so to speak, within the political system. Yeah, very much so. So, what James does and, and what, what I do is, is we're political economists, so we're really interested in the behavior of politicians as it relates to economic outcomes and economic forces. And so part of that involves, you know, 
the provision of public goods and how these things are distributed to poor people. And so if we have politicians that are stealing federal funds, then this is less money or less resources that can be provided to, to poor households or to the general public at large. So, um, so yes, absolutely. Is it possible to give us an idea of how widespread political corruption of, of this sort is? Oh, that's a very good and difficult question. So it's certainly widespread. Uh, it exists in, in virtually every country. We're still trying to figure out or still trying to quantify the extent of it. And so it's definitely pervasive. That much is, is safe to say. Whether we have an exact dollar amount that, you know, we can have our guesses, but they're going to be educated guesses at best. Um, I think at one point the World Bank estimated that there was $1 trillion in bribes. I could be misremembering, but it's, it's of that magnitude, if not more, or not greater. Well, let's talk a little bit about some specific research here. Um, and I want to start with a very basic question, but it is central to what we're talking about today. What is vote buying? How does it work? What kind of scale are we talking about in this research? Vote buying can take on many forms. The most common form that you see throughout the world is that politicians will deliver either cash or some other goods to a voter days, if not weeks, before the election with the anticipation that the voter would then respond and vote for them. Um, And it's extremely pervasive. A lot of studies have estimated that 25 to maybe 40 percent of politicians engage in vote buying it's a very commonly used practice in a lot of countries in Latin America and Africa, uh, Southeast Asia. And so it's a, it's a very common electoral practice. And the problem with vote buying is that it really undermines democracy. That's a big concern and why, why it's an important area of study. Okay, so in your research, you differentiate between a couple of different kinds of vote buying uh, and how it plays out in people's behavior. And one involves something called intrinsic reciprocity, and the other is instrumental reciprocity. Uh, So because that is going to inform a lot of what we're talking about today, can you define those for us? Yeah, so intrinsic intrinsic reciprocity is more just, it's, it's your general act of being reciprocal. So it's a behavioral, it's it's a feeling of oneself, whereas instrumental reciprocity is more about sort of this repeated interaction aspect where I'm going to be kind to you because I'm expecting for you to do me favors in the future. So it's, it's more of a quid pro quo action than something that I just feel good about rewarding people who, who did, you know, some act of kindness towards me. Okay, so then why focus on intrinsic reciprocity in the context of vote buying? Oh, because we were wondering if there was this behavioral element to this act of vote buying. So there's a big question is why do politicians engage in vote buying? And the reason why that's such a puzzle is because there's this what we call a commitment problem. This was a in fact, there's a double commitment problem, and I'll explain what that means in a second. But that's this was something that actually James Robinson had, had sort of coined, which is that imagine you're a politician and you want to buy my vote, and so you give me money right before the election. Well, I'm just going to go into the voters' booth, but there you can't see who I'm voting for. So right, I, think, I can do whatever I, I want. I can do whatever I want, exactly. So, so that's one issue of the commitment problem. But then there's 
the other side of the commitment problem, which is suppose instead, instead, you know, you say, look, I understand that you can vote for whoever you want. So instead, I'm going to pay you after the election if I win. Hmm. Well, in this case, the commitment problem lies with the voter because the voter says, well, wait a second. What if the politician wins and then, you know, decides not to pay me? So there's this issue of commitment, which makes it so that, you know, it's a real puzzle as to why vote buying is so pervasive, especially in the context of a secret ballot. And so one of the things that we hypothesized was, well, maybe there's, there's this behavioral element that politicians can exploit. You know, maybe people just are reciprocal. They feel good. They get utility from rewarding kindness or acts of kindness. And so that's what we, you know, think of as uh, intrinsic reciprocity, as opposed to this instrumental reciprocity where it's more of a quid pro quo over, over you know, re, uh, repeated games, so to speak. Okay, so you decided to look at how elections operated in Paraguay. Can you give us a bit of uh, Paraguayan Politics 101, why that was a good place for what you were studying? How do things operate there that made it a place where you might be able to see this happening? Typically, the reason why Paraguay seems so attractive is because they have this system of, of middlemen, much in the same way they do in the northeast, north, northeast of Brazil. And the idea is that political parties will use these middlemen who are people from the village who have grown up there and know the vi- you know the village members quite well? They'll use them to facilitate this vote buying, um, and so typically they'll provide the middlemen with the goods, who will then distribute them to the various households, and they take advantage of the fact that these middlemen are are trusted. Uh, well-respected individuals, or sometimes they're even community leaders within the village, and they know their, the villagers quite well. And in fact, the coolest aspect of this project, or at least one something that I thought was extremely cool, is that we took this the opportunity to actually, so I, we flew down to Paraguay and we interviewed 30 or so middlemen to ask them about how it operated and how they went about targeting individuals. Because something that often came up when we would try and get feedback about our study was, well, it makes sense that middlemen or politicians will want to target these reciprocal voters, but how, do, how on earth do they know that someone is reciprocal or not? Because right, right. that's a very hard you know, trait to observe. And so what we did, which I thought was kind of neat, was we asked to the middlemen, questions about villagers. And these questions would, would range from things that were very observable, such as, is such and such person married? How many hectares of land do they own? What's their years of schooling and so forth? To very, you know, what we would call hard to observe traits, such as on a scale of one to five, how reciprocal do you think this person is? How trustworthy do you think this person is? You know, we really tried to get, ask them questions about whether they can identify the social preferences of individuals. And much to our surprise, they were extremely competent at, you know, identifying which amongst, you know, a group of, of villagers were the most reciprocal. 
or we're the most trustworthy and so forth. And so if we think about our day-to-day lives and the friends that we have and, the, and our neighbors and so forth, we, we could probably do... We could probably figure um, out who, who's susceptible to vote buying. Well, maybe not, maybe not vote buying, but at least, you know, ones that would reciprocate favors and so forth. And so, right. you know, so in that respect, maybe we shouldn't have been so surprised after the fact as we were going into, into this exercise. So the middleman is essentially the community leader and politicians kind of have to go through them to get to voters. Absolutely. That's very much how it operates. And I think it also, because these these middlemen are, you know, within, you know, are leaders within the village, there's a certain level of trust that helps facilitate this exchange as well. The way you've described it kind of negates my next question, which was I was, you know, I was going to ask you how do you, how do you get people to show you or to talk about vote buying? You know, that would seem to be something that people wouldn't want to wouldn't want to talk about or admit. But what you're really looking at is the relationship that the middleman has to the people in the community, and essentially knowing kind of what kind of people they are. Absolutely. Yeah, so we were very concerned initially about whether or not households would freely admit that, you know, that they were either targeted with vote buying or that they agreed to went some... Went along with it. Yeah, or went along, exactly correct. And what we found early on, once we started talking to households, is that they were very forthcoming in this type of behavior. And, it, and there wasn't this sort of social stigma that's associated with it in the same way you might expect, you know, perhaps in the U.S. or something like that. So can you give us an example of what this kind of vote buying would look like as it, you know, as it's happening? What's happening with the politician and the middleman and the voter? What does that reciprocity involve? Well, so typically a very common practice would be, you know, a person will show up at your door you know, usually a day or two before the election. And it would just be kind of a very, you know, as you would expect in door-to-door get-out-to-vote campaigns where, you know, a person shows up at your door and they, you know, ask who you're voting for and whether you're going to vote and those type of things. And it's a very similar approach, oddly enough. But they ask you more. So after they, they you know, endorse their politician and, and ask who you're voting for and, and whether you're going to turn out and those type of things, they ask whether or not there's anything that they can do and whether you'd be supportive of their candidate if they could if they could provide a little bit of help and so forth. And so it's a very help in know, quotation marks. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But yeah, it's a very it's it's a very almost normal thing to do. It doesn't feel necessarily wrong, so to speak. And that's presumably where the reciprocity comes in. Right? Yes, absolutely. That it doesn't particularly feel wrong, so you feel good about it? Well, I think, you know, any time someone does you an act of kindness, if, if, you're, if you're... If it's cash or anything else. Or anything else, yeah. It doesn't have to be cash, per se. It can just be help, right? And so, you know, I, I you know, certain people out there, and, and, you know, I think a lot of us would be included in this, is, is, feels good about that and feel, and they want to do something in return for that individual even if it's not with some promise of some future return or something, or that they, you know, yeah, exactly, that they're involved in some sort of quid pro quo over the, over the lifetime. So then walk us through your findings. Um, what did the survey results tell you? 
So I think the two most interesting findings is, is first and foremost that these middlemen or politician are able to target voter or do target voters who are on average more reciprocal than others. And that in fact, they are able to identify which villagers are the most reciprocal, which is why they're able to target them in the first place. And so I think those would be the most interesting and, and novel findings that, that have come out of this research. And is there anything in there that can teach us how to prevent vote buying? We've been trying to combat vote buying for, for many decades now with, without much success. Having said that, there have been some recent anti-vote buying campaigns that have been done in a variety of different contexts, both in Africa and in Latin America. And typically what these campaigns recommend is what they say is, yes, you should take the money, but then vote for whoever you want. So it's <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds great no matter where you are. <laughs> exactly. So it's, it's almost a way of trying to target this, this natural reciprocal feel and say, wait a second, you don't need to be reciprocal in this instant. Take the money and then and then and do what you please, and if more if enough people start to do this, then this will no longer be a winning strategy for politicians, and I suspect that this might reduce vote buying in the in in the long run. And we do see, and there are some really nice experimental studies in Africa showing that these anti-corruption uh, campaigns can be effective, at least in the short run, for reducing vote buying. Hmm. Yeah, I was just going to ask you if it's possible to kind of expand these findings beyond Paraguay. Like, you know, what could they possibly mean for other nation states? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the I think the evidence is, is you know, the evidence is growing, but we're seeing that, that not only is vo- obviously vote buying pervasive throughout the entire world, but these anti-corruption uh, campaigns can be very effective in, in a variety of different contexts as well. Federico Finan, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate it. The Pie is a production of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu slash subscribe. And you can sign up for our newsletter there as well. And, of course, you can subscribe to The Pie on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI communications team. I'm Tess Vigland, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>